Well, last week, Nick brought us back to the days of our first jobs. You know, if you've ever had a first job, he did a great job of bringing us back there. For him, that was the world of blimpy subs. It was the world of bread and mayo. It was the world of bad bosses and embarrassing uniforms. And and uh, the was the best of times and the worst of times, yes. Um, and little tiny paychecks. Now, if this were a small group, it would be fun to just spend some time talking about our own first job stories. Because I'd imagine you've got some of those. Um, babysitting stories and mowing lawn stories and stories in retail or on the farm or whatever it was. And if we shared those stories, I'm sure that a a common theme of our stories would be a lot of the negative experiences um, when it comes to work. And yet, if we went deeper in that small group and we continued to talk about first jobs and then we continued beyond first jobs and we broadened work from something you're getting paid for but to all of our efforts, if we kept going deeper in that small group, I bet that you would find that there were some real positive memories also associated with something that you worked on or something that you worked for, of a, of a recital that you nailed, of a point that you scored, of a grade that you earned, of a piece of art that you created, of an award that you won or a class that you taught or a team that you made or an event that you hosted or a project you completed or a person that you helped. Something that you did a very good job of doing. I bet those stories would come forth too. In fact, show of hands, how many of you can remember a time when you worked hard for something and it felt really, really good? Look at that, right? So one of the things that that I hope is coming to your mind right now is that we, we, from our earliest memories, you know, until our dying breath, one of the things that unites humanity is this love-hate relationship with work. I think that's one of the things that we all have in common across the spectrum of ages and, and, and geography. Well, the Bible begins talking about work as soon as it begins talking about anything. In the beginning, we read that work is something that God does, and His work is good work. In the beginning, we read that God created humanity in His own image, and then He created us to do good works, you know, to care for His creation. And in the beginning, we also read that humanity's sin resulted in a curse that is now associated with the labor of both men and women, pun intended. I roll expected. In the Judeo-Christian origin narrative, work is presented as a blessing and work is also associated with a curse. And I haven't read every ancient creation account, but I'm not aware of any ancient origin story that nails our experience with work, this love-hate thing, like the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. I don't know of a parallel when it comes to describing our experience with work. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, they present work as both a blessing, something good, and also something that is misery-inducing. That's how it's presented. And if you continue beyond Genesis 3, if you keep reading, you're going to find that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And then you begin to see how that affects work. If you have your Bibles with, let's take a look. We're going to be today exclusively in what's called the book of Colossians. So if you want to open up and just keep a finger there or a bookmark there or electronic, whatever it is that you do to keep it there 
Set it as your screensaver. I don't know. I'm not as techy as, as a lot of folks. I want to let, do let you know, though, if you want to, what I'll call the real, no, I won't call it that. If you want a, 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 a copy of the Bible in written form, we keep a stack of them there on each of the tables. We'd love to give you one as a gift today. Uh, it's just there. Please just take one. We'd love to offer that to you. All right, well, let's take a look here. Um, this, what we're going to look at, this, this excerpt from Colossians, it's from a letter. It's from a letter that was written around 62 A.D. That's roughly within 30 years of the death of Jesus of Nazareth. And what I'd like you to note here is how the author crea- connects creation with Jesus of Nazareth and then what he refers to as the gospel, the author here. All right, so here we go. Starting with verse 15, Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. He, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him and through him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus of Nazareth is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you as holy and blameless and beyond reproach or above reproach before him. If indeed you do continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Got all that? (laughs) All right, if this was a little bit hard to understand, it's not just you. Paul is extremely difficult for me to read. But let me just give a quick summary of what we just read as it relates to work. Jesus' work is inseparable from God's work. Jesus' work is inseparable from God's work. Jesus' work, his sinless life, his death on the Roman cross, his resurrection from the dead, that's got the power to set things right, to set things right. And that's what Christians call the gospel or the good news. Now, early Christians, like the author of this letter, they saw a connection between Genesis and God's work and the gospel and our The early church believed that our bodies embodied the body of Jesus Christ in our world. Therefore, our work, everything we do, it's really God's work through us. Well, as time went on, that's what the early church got. As time went on, that holistic worldview that everything we do is for the glory of God, that that faded. And by the time we reached the medieval period as humanity, God's work got separated from normal human work. They were looked at as two different things. In the medieval world, God's work was seen as spiritual. God's work was the spiritual stuff. And so if you wanted to do God's work, it was thought in the medieval times, the way to do that, you have to become a priest. You have to become a nun. You have to become a monk. That's how you do God's work. That's what they thought in the medieval times, even though the Bible teaches us that everything we do in word and deed is to be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, then came the course correction that we now refer to as the Reformation. 
And the church rediscovered, not something new, they rediscovered what the Bible had been teaching all along. Now, if you're starting to fade out because I just used the word history, come back with me because this is history that matters. This is history that matters. Take a look at this picture here. This guy, anyone know who this is? Martin Luther. This is history that matters. This man and others who, who, who took these things up, God used this man and his contemporaries to change the world. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, the Protestant work ethic? Anyone ever heard that? Okay, it can be traced back to, to Luther and his contemporaries and others who came slightly before and afterward. And when I heard that phrase growing up, I thought from context what they're talking about here is just working really hard and doing it in an ethical way. And as I prepared, it was, it was for this message, it's so much richer than that. So much richer than that. I, I typed up, there's a whole lot of stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor today. I, I typed up some extra quotes and put them in your, in your notes in that yellow sheet. I could encourage you to reflect on some of those. There's also a book that I refer to on your green sheet. On your green sheet, I recommend this book, God at Work by Gene Edward Veith Jr. He does a, a really good job of, of, of taking a deeper dive into this Protestant work ethic. So... <clears throat> I'd point you to those resources, but here is a ridiculously concise summary of what the Reformers rediscovered. The Reformers rediscovered that we're not reconciled with God through our works. We don't earn salvation by anything we do. In Christ, they rediscovered, we already have the things that most people work for. Now, they may not be working for these consciously, but at the deepest part of who we are as a shared humanity, we're working for salvation, we're working for self-worth, we're working for a clear conscience, we're working for ultimate security. And if we're not working towards those things, we become miserable people. Work isn't about attaining something for yourself. In fact, if I, I finally I got language for this this morning... I was wrestling with this all this week. How do I summarize the Protestant earth work ethic? It's summarized by, it's not about earning, it's about giving. It's not about earning, it's not about giving. If you're looking on the screens, I don't have it there because I was just finally this morning. Aha, that's how it is. If that's how you're going to sum it up. Protestant, it's not about earning because God already has provided all that. It's about giving in response to God's grace. That's the gospel. It's a freely, freely you've received, freely, freely give kind of thing. This gospel understanding, this renewed understanding, it fueled what we now call the Protestant work ethic. Their approach to work includes a rich understanding of who we ultimately work for. It it includes a rich understanding of the real work beneath the work. There's the surface work, but there's the work beneath the work. The the Protestant work ethic has this accompanying desire to always give your best because the work is ultimately about honoring God and serving his creation. That's ultimately what it's about. It's not about trying to to earn something. It's not about a lesser motivation. The reformers used a a phrase. They called it the priesthood of all believers. Here's a, a quote that speaks to that. The priesthood of all believers didn't make everyone into church workers. Rather, it turned every kind of work into a sacred calling. I would amend what he says by it didn't, it didn't turn it. This is what the Bible had been saying all along. They just rediscovered it. Luther put it like this. He said, God provides the wool. You don't provide the wool. But the wool on the sheep, it's not going to make a coat for anybody or a blanket, right? Right. right. Clothing people is God's work 
It's one of the innumerable ways that God cares for his creation. However, God clothes people through shepherds and through our friends at the mall. God feeds us, right? God feeds us. Sometimes he does it with manna, but primarily God feeds us through farmers and truck drivers and our friends at Chipotle. God heals, sometimes supernaturally, but most often God heals through nurses and lab techs and doctors and our friends at Walgreens. God protects. Sometimes he protects through divine intervention, but primarily God protects through police officers and firefighters and our armed services and people who make door locks, right? Primarily, that's how God works. Primarily, it's God, but he's working through his creation that he created. He works primarily through people. And some of the most miserable people you're ever going to meet are those who don't get this. Or us, when we forget that work really isn't about earning. Work is about giving. You know, anybody had a chance to watch any of the World Cup? A little bit? All right, they've had some... Well, Rick did. um, uh, They've had some key injuries, different teams have key injuries. And when you watch the best players, and they're watching their team, especially when their team is down, what's it like for the players? They want to get in the game, right? They want to help their team. The best players, they want to be on the field. They don't want to be on the sidelines, you know? And and something deep within us longs to make a difference. Why? God put it there. God put it there. Something deep within us longs to make a difference in the world. God designed every one of us not to sit on the bench, every one of us to be a starter in one way, shape, or form, and a starter in all kinds of different ways, wherever you are, to be a starter, to be serving. Here's a a great quote. This one isn't from the book God at Work. This one's from um, a book called Every Good Endeavor, which I recommended a couple weeks ago. Look, Look at this. Imagine if we could catch this, all right? Farming. Farming takes the physical material of soil and seed, and it produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming and filling and subduing this Genesis work. When we, when we bring about order from chaos, when we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from this, this idea of cultivation. Just as God subdued the earth in his work of creation, so he calls us now to labor as his representatives in a continuation and extension of the work of subduing. That's rich, isn't it? Can you imagine how our lives and our world would be different if we lived according to that? If we would keep coming back to that? Wait a minute. I'm not sweeping a floor. I'm not doing dishes. I'm not cooking. What's the work beneath 
the work? I'm not listening. What's the work beneath the work? Here is something I would encourage you to write down. Uh, The Protestant work ethic, which I would say is really just applying the gospel to our calling as workers. It has the power to change your life. It has the power to change our world. That change our world, that is not hyperbole. Why can I say that? Because we have a historical record that speaks to that. If we had more time, I would love to go back and show you how the Protestant work ethic applied to our world. It changed literacy rates throughout the world. It still is. It changed the, the, the area of social and economic mobility. It transformed that. It, it was absolutely essential in getting the scripture into the hands of, of everyday folks like us. It changed the world. So yes, it, when, I, when I say that it has the power to change the world, you bet. What about the your life part? What about the, does it really have the power to change your life? Can the Protestant work ethic reduce your job misery index? Let's take a couple minutes to look at that. And I think this is going to be kind of fun. We're going to have a couple video clips here in a second. Now, for the record, before we dive in, this is overly simplistic. It doesn't apply to everybody's situations, blah, 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 blah. Come on, give me a break. we got 35 minutes to get all this in, right? Okay? So, so let that go. Let that go right now. Everybody letting that go? Okay, we're letting that go. Um, the other thing that I want to say, too, for the record, is some jobs are beyond redemption for various reasons. And the God-honoring thing to do is for you to transition out in a God-honoring way because it's so toxic or so working against the things that we're to work for, that the right thing to do is to transition out in a God-honoring way. So we're all on that same page there. Okay. But that said, let's take your average miserable job, all right? Let's take an average miserable job and apply the gospel and look at what happens, how it can change your, your, your experience there. Um, what we're going to do to set this up is we're going to go off of a framework put out there by a guy named Patrick Lencioni. Love Patrick Lencioni. I've got seven of his books on my shelves. Great stuff. Nobody understands work better than Patrick Lencioni. He's a speaker. He's a consultant. This is what he does. He presses into work. One of his most recent books is this one. It's called The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. All right? So he's head on. He's taking this on. Three signs of a miserable job. Here's his three signs of a miserable job. They are anonymity, irrelevance, and immeasurability. So what we're going to look here now at is a couple clips from a leadership conference, the Willow Creek Leadership Summit, in which he lays this out where he just says, here's one of the signs of a miserable job, and then we'll really quickly hit pause on each of these, and then we'll just say, okay, what happens if we apply to the gospel to this sign that you're in a miserable job? Make sense? All right. I hope so because we're going to keep going. Let's go. Let's fire clip number one. That cause job misery. So going back to that first management consulting job I had, it's hard to drink water out of one of these, isn't it? <laughs> I just knew it would be like all over me. Um, so, so that first job as a management consultant, I was like, why do I not like this job? And I, I, I realized I'd be walking down the hall and one of the partners would walk by and I'd say, hey, how's it? Oh, he didn't see me. Oh, he's busy, you know. And then I'd, well, the other day I'd be walking, hey, there's another one. Hey, uh, ooh, he didn't see me either. And I thought... And I talked to my colleagues. I said, do they do that? They do that to you too? Yeah. Did they lose our resumes? Did they forget who we were? And one of the things we realized is we had the first sign of a miserable job, which was anonymity. Anonymity. We felt anonymous. The people that we worked for weren't interested in us as people, didn't know us, and didn't have an interest in getting to know us. 
Okay, I, I remember how much this was driven home for me when I went to my first client event with a, with a senior manager. And while we were going there, I said, okay, I can't wait to get there. I'm going to talk to the client. We're going to go over this and this. He goes, no, 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 no. You're not going to say anything. You just carry my bag. You're like my monkey. <laughs> the best and the brightest monkey, no doubt. But <laughs> nonetheless, a monkey. And I remember these people, we were just a commodity. All right, maybe somebody can relate to that. Now, let's just quickly apply the gospel. I'd encourage you to write this down. If you apply the gospel, the gospel assures us that our work doesn't go unnoticed. If you're in a situation where you're feeling anonymous, I don't want to take away from that. It's one of the signs of a miserable job. If you're an employer, make sure that you're doing everything you can to help people not feel anonymous. If you're a coworker, help to work on that environment. What I'm saying is if that's not in place, you apply the gospel, you can know that your work doesn't go unnoticed. Why? Because who are you ultimately working for? God, does he notice your work? Yes. Let's go back to Colossians. Back to Colossians. Here's what it says. Whatever you do, Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, honor your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, note this, not in way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing whom? Your boss, the Lord, whatever you do, here's the money one, all right, money verse. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for people, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I didn't just only put that section up. I put all the rest up as just a reminder of all the vocations are sacred, Fatherhood is a vocation. Motherhood is a vocation. Childrenhood is a vocation, right? It's all a vocation. And in all of those vocations, it's ultimately about serving the Lord. You're not alone. There is a God who sees you. There is a God who is with you wherever you are. And your work matters to him. All right, clip number two. Second sign of a miserable job. The second one is the one that prompted me to write this book. I see, I hadn't even thought about this, but I was with a colleague in Oklahoma City at the airport. We were passing through, and we went to this barbecue place, and I gave this talk once, and somebody said, that's Corky's Barbecue. I don't know if it's still there if you're from Oklahoma City, but anyway, it was called Corky's Barbecue. And we went up to get a... Somebody's clapping for Corky's. Hey, funny. Um, so um, we went up to get a sandwich, and the lady at the counter was like can I help you? And we're like, yeah, number four combo, number four, stand over there, you know? And we were like, oh my gosh. But we're like, fast food place at the airport. And they're like, number four. And they give us our sandwich. And we're sitting there, me and my colleague, and we're watching these people work. And, And I've always been interested in this since I was a kid. I thought, oh my gosh, how awful this job is for these people. And then lo and behold, a few minutes later, this young guy comes to work and he's got his little hat on and he's all chipper. And he's like, hey, everybody. And I, hi. And he's like goes up to the, the desk. He's like, can I help you, sir? And number four. And they're like, number four. And I thought, oh gosh, they're going to beat the life out of this kid, right? <laughs> and so, and so I remember I, I turned to my colleague and I said, now that kid has got a job at a fast food place in an airport, right? He's never going to get rich or, or famous doing this. Not that that's what we should want in life, but, but doesn't he, and I remember saying, doesn't he deserve to like being here more than we do? Cause I mean, it's already tough, Shouldn't he at least enjoy the experience? And I thought, what would he need to enjoy his job? 
And I thought, you know why people think this is a terrible job? Not because of his pay and everything else. It's because he has a second sign of a miserable job. He feels irrelevant. Irrelevance is a job killer. If you don't think that your job matters to someone, anyone, in some way, large or small, if you don't think your job makes someone else's life better in some way, you cannot love your work. God gave us an innate desire to love others. And if we have a job that has no, nothing of that in it, we can't love our work. You know, I was um, listening to a, a tape where they, they, they took, uh, took this clip and then they commented on it. And when they were commenting on it, um, the guy Bill Hybels, a pastor who leads the summit, he was talking about how now when he goes and he meets with business professionals, they're talking about double bottom lines. Because they're realizing I can't motivate my employees enough with just profit because that's only so much of a motivator. So they have to have a double bottom line. They have to say, what are, what's the work beneath your work? What else are we doing as a company, as an organization that's really going to fuel that deep desire for people to make a difference? Well, I want to present to you that if you have an understanding of the gospel, it assures you your work's not wasted. Your work isn't wasted. The gospel points us to the work beneath the work. And almost every vocation provides a way to serve God by caring for his creation. God will ensure, here's the other thing, God will ensure that your work in his name won't be wasted, even if you can't see evidence with your own eyes. If we go back to Colossians, let's go back to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 24, a summary of verses 24 through 29 says this, the author, a man named Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For this I toil, struggling with all Christ's energy that powerfully works within me. Does anyone know where Paul was when he wrote the book of Colossians? Prison. You think you have a miserable job? Try first century prisoner. That's a miserable job, right? Miserable job, all right? So he's got this miserable job. Paul was sent to prison for doing God's work. And I'll confess, if I got sent to prison for doing what I thought was God's work, I'd be like, this is so frustrating. I just got taken out of the game. How am I supposed to do God's work? I'm in prison now. Paul had a different paradigm because of the gospel. That God's in control of all things. And And human sin is playing into this for sure. But here's where I am right now. God, here I am. How can you use me? How can you use me? Paul was sent to prison again for doing God's work, and yet Paul could rejoice in his sufferings because he knew his sufferings aren't going to be wasted. Somehow, God, you're going to use this. And it came to pass. We're reading his words from prison. All right, one more clip. Let's take a look. The last sign of a miserable job, let's just put it up there, it's called immeasurement. Now, this is not a word in the dictionary. We just made it up because we couldn't find a word for it. What it means is this. All human beings have a need in their lives, in their jobs, to be able to assess for themselves whether or not they're doing a good job. If they're dependent on the boss telling them, or their boss's opinion, or whim, or mood that day, that feels like slavery, you know? We need to know... And, we, and the, the more we can get intrinsic and under understanding of our success, the better we're going to love our jobs. You know, athletes do have this. Imagine a coach saying to an athlete, I don't want you looking at the scoreboard. I'm not going to give you your stats. I'll tell you if you played well. I mean, I was a runner. If I came off after running a mile and said, what's my time? 
oh, don't worry, I thought you looked good. Like, Give me my time, I'm going to kill you, you know, because I want to know. You know who else? Salespeople, actually, there's a higher job satisfaction among salespeople often. You know why? Because you could say, how's it going? And they can go, well, I stink, or I'm doing great, and they know. They're not like, I don't know, I have to ask my manager and see how he feels or she feels. <laughs> Even waiters and waitresses, what I notice is, like when we, I used to work at a restaurant, they'll come up after and they'll look at what their tip was. They're not like going, oh, I'm going to refinance my house, $12, you know. <laughs> what they're doing is they're saying, did they recognize that I did well? Oh, gosh, 25%, that is awesome. In my book, I talk about the kid who's working the drive through window at a restaurant. And he's kind of a slacker, and this boss takes over this restaurant, and he wants to turn it around. And so he goes to this kid, he goes, I want you to have a measurement so you can assess if you're having a good day. And he says, what do you think you should measure? And the kid says, I don't know, how about the number of people that come through the drive through And the manager says, well, do you control that? He says, no, then don't measure that. And the kid says, well, how about the speed at which I turn the orders around? He goes, do you control that? He goes, no, that's the kitchen. He goes, don't measure that. See, we can measure the wrong things. He finally says, why don't you just measure? Why don't you just count the number of people you make laugh or smile? And the kid looks at him like he asked him to crawl through the drive-thru window and give a back rub to the people in the car. (laughs) And he says, well, but I might cheat. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm not grading you on it. or I just want you to be able to tell me at the end of the night how you're doing. See, it's not just a matter of having a number that feeds into the payroll system and gives you a bonus. People just need an inherent measure of whether they're succeeding, usually in their area of relevance. I told that story to, I know I have some Chick-fil-A friends here today, and some drive through people at Chick-fil-A said, oh my gosh, we did that one Christmas. We had a big contest to see who could get more people to say Merry Christmas back to us in the drive through We had a chart up. What does that speak to? The desire to put something in place so you can know if you're doing a good job. And this is so important um, that one of the studies they quoted when they're breaking this down, they said they have studies where a person who receives critical feedback has a higher job satisfaction than someone that receives no feedback. It's so important. How am I doing? Is anyone noticing? Is anyone measuring? Well, here's what I'm going to say about the gospel. The gospel will give you a measurement for success in everything, you know, in every circumstance. You've got a measurement for success. If you're living according to the gospel. And what's so good about this, your measurement for success isn't a metric that you, that you may not be able to achieve because of the fallen state of the world. The curse that we read about in Genesis, it fits our experience. Sometimes you do everything right and everything still goes wrong, right? And you might be, I failed. I'm in prison. I was doing God's work and I'm in prison. How, you know, I'm failing. It's what the Bible refers to as thorns and thistles all the way back at the time of the fall, Right? We can miss our metrics by a mile and we can still be successful according to the gospel. Here's, here's your measurement of success. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. Did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? When you failed, well, did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? When you had a success, did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? When you got a pay cut, did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? If you got a pay increase... Did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? In that argument that didn't go well, as much as it depended on you, did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? As much as it depends on you, did you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? We have a measurement in every situation. Now, again, I said this going in, we've only had the time to scratch the first layer of snowflakes on the proverbial iceberg here that is the Protestant work ethic. But I will count it a win. I'll count it a win if you came away 
or come away with a renewed appreciation of this, that the Protestant work ethic, properly applied and understood, it's got the power to change your life. It has the power to change our world. I'll count it a win if you can walk out of this room with a greater sense of purpose, a greater or renewed sense. We've got an opportunity in almost every situation to honor God and to serve others. You have to look for it. What's the work beneath the work? I'll count it a win this morning. If you were reminded, our salvation, it's not about the normal metrics. It's not about something that we can do. Our salvation, that's God's work. Our work. Our work is to honor God and serve others. At best, it's a response to God's grace. It's an opportunity to join with God in caring for his creation, an opportunity to join him in renewing and restoring and fixing what was broken in the fall. As representatives of God's on earth, God on earth, can you imagine if we as God's people, we never went through our lives, we never approached work with a number four attitude, right? That was never us on any job. We'll have to remind each other of that a lot, won't we? We do. We have to come along. We have to remind ourselves because it's really easy. Number four about whatever it is we got to do. But what if we weren't number four people? What if we looked for those opportunities? How in this situation can I walk in a manner worthy? What can I do in this situation to serve others, to honor God? That's actually where we're going to pick up then next week. Next week we're going to pick up because next week we're going to talk about work as witness. How do we do that well? But here's the, what I want to close with. I want to, I want to close today with the backstory to those videos. This is fun. And some of you watched this yourself. Some of you seen this because I know some of you have gone to these summits before. Again, I'm a huge Patrick Lencioni fan. I got introduced to him through these Willow Creek, Willow Creek Leadership Summits. Once a year, this, it started off as just this church. It turned into an association, the Willow Creek Association. They have this leadership summit. And they don't just bring in the best church leaders. They don't see leadership. They don't see work as something that there's the church work and then there's God's work. There's, there's God's work, Right? So they invite speakers to come in from all sorts of disciplines they, and, and areas. They come in from education and entertainment and government and business and medicine. They bring in leaders of NGOs. They bring in people who are professing Christians and those who aren't. And when Patrick Lencioni first came, he was a churchgoer, but he didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. And you could kind of see him blown away kind of early on. I remember some of the, the early things. He, he was, this is a church. You've got passion, you know? These aren't exactly his words. You could see this and you could read it between the lines. That, that the, he was blown away by the passion, by the excellence. And what really struck him was how the people, the Christians here at this conference, didn't treat him like a commodity. You're, you're the speaker. You have value in what you can deliver as a product. They actually cared about him as a person. Again, you could tell he was blown away. And over the course of several summits and his interaction behind the scenes with the Christians who sponsor it, Lencioni, who grew up attending church, he realized there's a whole lot more to the gospel than this medieval understanding where there's church and then there's what I do with my life. And you should have heard the cheers. Maybe some of you were there. When Patrick Lencioni at one of the summits let us know, he goes, now I get it. I get it. And we were all thrilled to hear that he got it. Well, as we close today, I want to invite you to reflect on your own relationship with God. Would you say that you're a person who, when I say they get it, you're like, I know what you mean by get it. Or are you like, I don't 
get what you're saying there. You know, are you a person who grew up maybe going and attending religious services or you try to do the religious things? But this idea of it being real and integrated into all of my life beyond just like a philosophical thing. If you'd like to talk more about that, I would love to have that conversation, perhaps give you some resources. Or perhaps you're thinking, hey, God is just this abstract concept. It's not even that. I mean, I don't even, I don't even come to these things normally. I'd love to have that conversation too, perhaps answer some questions, give you some resources. We're here to help. And as best we can, we would love to be a people who can help bridge that gap between an understanding of church and religion and understanding of who God is and the difference that that can make in your life. We'd love to help with that if you'd be up for it. Also at the close of the service, we always offer prayer right over there at the sign that says prayer. We're oftentimes very literal as a people. And I'll even get more specific today. Before the service started, um, one of the people who will be there praying, he handed me a little card and said, neck problems. If you are experiencing neck neck problems, perhaps... That's something specific that you want to go and, uh, and, and pray about. But we'll pray about anything. If there's anything going on in your life, we'd love to pray with that. So as we close, let me pray for us as a group. And if you'd like individual prayer or individual conversations, let us know afterwards. Please stand. Let's pray as we go our separate ways for the week. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a God who doesn't um, create a world and then you just invite us to watch. But you want to engage us fully. It's crazy that you would trust us with the things you trust us with. But I guess it does make sense and that ultimately you are in, in control. And that you're at work even when sin affects everything we do. You can still make good out of it. There's none like you, God. And so, Lord, I pray that you will be working on every one of our hearts and minds as individuals. Whatever it is that we need to be working out with you, we pray you'll help us to do that. Whether it's something that's, that's as focused as a specific situation where you would have us to, to, to seek what it means to serve you and to honor you, Lord, then we, we pray that you'll help us with that. Or whether it's something as big as an understanding of what it means to respond to the gospel for the first time. To, to, to say, okay, God, I, I'm going to put my trust in you, my full trust in you. What you say I'll do where where you go, I'll, I'll follow, I'll, I'll completely yield my self and my will to yours. So whether it's focused or whether it's big, Lord, help us to continue to take these steps towards the life that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.